Yeah, I just got a text a couple minutes ago from Pastor from Pastor Tony, and he's uh, he's under the weather. So that means the whole Pilata family's there with Tara and everyone there. So, um, okay, let's turn to our Bibles <clears throat> to Second Samuel chapter twenty-four, and uh, our goal really is to try to have. All of us out of here by 12, 12, 15. And uh, we'll do our best to do that. I think we started a little bit late. 2 Samuel chapter 24. You know, I just want to mention that there's a lot of people that listen to these messages uh, that we're preaching because we post the messages on the internet. I have a podcast, and if you go to our website, you can find the podcast, if you know what that word means. And our website is basically churchofone.org, churchofone.org. Why one? Because we are one in Christ, one in purpose, one in mission, one in vision. That's Ephesians chapter 4. And the, uh, we have people that listen in Ukraine. We have people that listen to the messages in Czech Republic. We have people that listen to messages in Russia, Central Asia, and even in the United States. A couple people. <laughs> More than a couple. And so I'm just so blessed that people take the time to listen to these messages. And uh, I hope it's a blessing for them to listen to it. So we send greetings to those folks listening. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 24. We are in the, we are in the last two messages. <clears throat> Can I get a glass of water? <clears throat> The last two messages of uh, the life of David, and I really feel like that we have not done justice to cover all the aspects of David's life. Uh, tonight, in the, in the meeting that we have tonight, this, the class that we have tonight, I'll be here teaching on the um, uh, furtherance of this subject that we're going to cover today, but um, we are a, thanks Don, we are a, what we call a Word of God church. We're a church that focuses around Jesus Christ and around really exalting Jesus Christ. And as Diana just said so preciously, that like whenever we give or serve or minister, uh, we are really doing that to uh, impact people that are really in a lot of trouble. And we ourselves have been in that place, haven't we? We've all been in a lot of trouble. None of us are excluded from that. And we had God, God sent into our lives rescuers, and God brought us to the right place, and that's really the grace of God. And so our church, I like to look at as like a refuge, a place where people can just run for their lives and run into the, run into the building. And I think actually there's been talk about that, hasn't there? There's, there's some folks that are talking about having a building or something uh, where if they are being pursued by the authorities, they can run to the building and get refuge. That's actually a biblical principle of the called in the Old Testament cities of refuge. But we as a church, that's our mission. We're growing. We are growing, and it's just great that uh, Rose has come on board to help us in a little bit during the month. She's going to be actually our have, helping with some secretarial things, and uh, so we're just kind of developing our ourselves here as time goes on, and we really appreciate everyone's sacrificial volunteerism. None of us are getting paid. (laughs) 
None of us are getting paid, but that's great because that's that just is, makes it so much more fun, doesn't it? So, 2 Samuel 24, David's life is really a complicated life, isn't it? You read David's life and you're like, you ever think your life is complicated? Read what goes on in David's family. David's family is just, he's got so much going on. It's 2 Samuel chapter 24. He is nearing the end of his life, and you would think that scandals and difficulties and troubles would actually would subside, but they really don't. Last week we talked about the rebellion of his son against him because of, because of his Absalom's wounds. He was a wounded child and those were never addressed and his father never really uh, under, never, did not have the wisdom from God to, uh, or the, even the humility to reconcile with his son at that young age and that created a monster in David's house. And so we see that David uh, was really a man after God's own heart. What David knew, he was a professional at rebounding in the grace of God. He understood how to rebound back into God's plan for his life. And that's why David was so blessed. Um, we don't see David as a man that has his whole life together. We see David as a man that is like every one of us, who we are faced with a lot of different things that life throws at us, a lot of temptation, a lot of stuff that the devil throws at us to get us off track. But what puts David back on track each time is the grace of God, God's amazing grace. And there are things that the devil wants to throw at us to get us to be in a place where we would not be recipients of the favor and the grace of God. Now, what I mean by that is, is that we are under grace. We know that that's the New Testament principle, the New Testament uh, economy of grace. We are under the grace of God. And everything that God does in our life or allows to happen to us is underlined by His favor and His grace. Okay? Let's remember that. That whatever happens to you is whether how, however hidden, hidden or, or um, obvious <clears throat> the hand of the Lord, God's hands of grace is in it. And we need to be professionals at searching out the grace of God in every circumstance in our life. Where is God's favor in this? Where is the blessing of the Lord in this? And we may not see it immediately, but it's there. The devil, on, in, on the other hand, his whole campaign is to, to block the blessing of God in your life. Because the devil knows he can't take away your salvation. If the devil could do that, then he'd be greater than God, and he'd be greater than uh, the finished work. He'd be greater than what Jesus said on the cross. It is finished. If the devil could take away, or if we could take away our salvation, we'd be greater than the work of Christ, wouldn't we? So the devil can't do that. So what does he try to do? He says, well, if I can't steal their salvation, I'm going to make them miserable. I'm just going to make them very up, un, up, uh, upset and unhappy. And unfortunately, that's what's happening with a lot of Christians today. A lot of people live their life never discovering how great God is. Uh, who I think it was D.L. Moody or Charles Spurgeon. I don't remember who said it, but the point is the important thing. And they said that people only know enough about God, or maybe it was Billy Sunday. People know only enough about God to be miserable. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? You know? We hear the message about the cross of Christ that crucifies the flesh, and that's where we stop. We stop there. We just get, oh, I'm being crucified in my life. But really, we need to go beyond that and see that there's a resurrection. There's a Friday of crucifixion, but there's a third day 
where Jesus is risen from the dead. Hang on. That's how God works. But in chapter 24, we see a very curious situation. I'm going to read this. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now, we don't know why the anger of the Lord is kindled against Israel, because it doesn't go into details here. Uh, there, it could be that there's a series of events that happen, and that God is just is angry. And it takes a lot for God to get angry, by the way, because God's patience is just so amazing. God's patience is one of the great mysteries of the Bible, how patient God is with people, how God is so patient with us. It's just amazing. It's unbelievable how God is so patient with us. And he moved David against Israel to say, go number Israel and Judah. Very curious verse here. How is it that God moves David to sin? What is that? We see this also in other places. We see that God made the heart of Pharaoh hard back in the book of Exodus, the beginning of the book of Exodus, where Moses is trying to deliver God's people. And how is it that God does this and that God moves people? Is, is God moving people to sin? Is God moving people to be in a place of enticement and temptation where they can't resist and they fail? Well, let's look at the whole counsel of God. Whenever there's a curious verse, we always want to look at comparative verses so we can get the context of what's going on. All right, Because this is what happens is that people look at one verse and they get lost because they're trying to interpret it from what they know. Let's look at, a, let's look at the context of it. We know that Second Chronicles is really a, is really a parallel summary of of what's happening in 2 Samuel. 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Chronicles are like two parallel roads. Remember the, how many have been, ever been on the Jersey Turnpike going to New York City? And you're on these confusing roads and there's, it looks like there's, like there's two roads. There's like there's, you see a sign, trucks and car, uh, cars and buses this way and car, and no, wait a minute, trucks and buses go this way, right? Cars, Go this way, right? And you're on this parallel. I remember driving to New York City and wanting to get off at a rest stop, you know, because we wanted to get some coffee. And so we're on this parallel road and we're wondering, well, trucks and buses look like they're going to have an, an exit, but what about us? You know, we stayed on it and then eventually we saw the exit and we got off too. First and Second Samuel and First and Second Chronicles are like, are like that. They are parallel roads. But Second Chronicles is dealing with a different perspective of what's going on than First and Second Samuel, and I want to talk about that next time. But just look at it this way: that this is a parallel. It's like the Gospels. There are four Gospels, four different people looking at the same Jesus from different directions. And when you're looking at a person or a tree from different directions, you're going to notice some things that other people aren't seeing. And so, Second Chronicles chapter twenty-one. Has, has, an, has an account of the same situation. Let's read this together. Second, Samuel, uh, Second Chronicles chapter 21. Second Samuel, uh, Chronicles 21. I keep saying Samuel. It's my ADD, I think. Mm-hmm. Now Jehoshaphat, I'm sorry, excuse me. Get back up here. First Chronicles, excuse me, chapter 21. First Chronicles, chapter 21. 
Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Wait a minute. Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Let's go back to what we just read in 2 Samuel 24. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he moved David to number Israel. Wait a minute. What's going on here? I want to explain something that um, can be easily misunderstood. That God has a permissive will. And we know that whatever God allows is really in some way relates to what His will is. Now let me explain this. We know that Nothing happens without God's permission. We know this with the story of Job. Job, um, uh, Job was tested by the devil, and the devil was allowed to do that by the permission of God. And so it's not necessarily God here moving David. I, and I'll spare you all the Hebrew um, grammatical uh, descriptions here that show that it wasn't actually God taking David and moving him to do this. But basically what happens is, is that God allows the devil to stand up against Israel so that God's plan ultimately can be done. And I just want to say it very shortly here is that Satan is not free to do what he wants to do in your life. He is under a leash and collar and he is not allowed to do a lot that he would like to do. But what he is allowed to do is very limited because what he does, in the end, no matter how he tries, is going to, in the end, God is going to show his redemptive plan. And God, in his permissive will, allows David to number Israel. And in God allowing to do that, we see that God's ultimate purpose works out. Whenever something happens in your life and you see great evil happening, we have to understand that that God ultimately is in control and he's going to convert this. Remember what we said at the beginning of the message, God's going to convert it into his gracious redemptive plan. And so we have to look at this, that, that there is hidden, God, God's gracious hand is hidden in this matter. And so God allows the devil to stand up against Israel, like he allowed the devil to stand up against Job, to bring about something that the devil can't even see. And what Israel and David can't even see. So God allows David's heart to become hardened with pride. And David here in verse 2, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 24, For the king said to Job, Joab, the captain of the host which was with him, Go now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, and number ye the people, that I may know the number of the people. Now this doesn't sound so bad, it doesn't sound so sinful. But let's, let's look what's behind it. God is not looking really at what is the activity of people, but he's really looking at the motives of the heart. And he sees in David's heart a heart that has become proud. It has been lifted up. It's become careless. It's become familiar. And it's become careless. And we talked about this before, that familiarity always breeds carelessness. And carelessness always breeds compromise. And just remember that process David here numbers the people. He tells Job, Joab, his general, go number the people. Joab said to the king, uh, this is not wise. Don't do this. David insists. And so what happens here is, is that David expresses 
pride in his heart because he wants to look at his sufficiency and what he has outside of really the perspective of what God's provision and care has been. God has brought David so far down the road and now David is going to count his strength. He's going to, he's going to, he's going to take account of his military power. And this was really an act of defiance against trusting God. Let's break this down into a practical um, application. That when we look at our life outside of the perspective of God's faithfulness, we tend to become self-sufficient, right? We begin to say, wow, this is what I've done. Look what I have done. Look how I have brought myself. And this is really an act of pride. I want to not focus on that, but I want to look at this subject of pride for a few minutes this morning. And I want to take a look at this and really drill this down into practical application for us this morning. James 4 verse 6 says this, that He gives more grace, wherefore he saith, God resists the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. This is actually a quote from an Old Testament verse in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And this is where we get really our uh, name of our church in James 4, 6, and 7. God gives greater grace. In the Greek, it's greater grace. God gives greater grace. Sometimes people ask me, like, why is your church greater grace? You know, there's grace community, there's grace Grace fellowship, there's grace this, great. Why are you guys greater grace? And I always just say, you know what? Because we are bigger sinners than everybody else and we need greater grace. <laughs> but I like this verse here because greater grace means it says, you know what? When we are in a position of humility, we receive greater grace. And I want to talk about pride first before we do that. What does it mean that God resists the proud? Well, pride really is a great... It's the, greatest, it's the greatest sin in the Bible. It's bigger than the big seven. You know those big seven sins? You can, actually, it's in Wikipedia. I found this the other day. The seven deadly sins. Wikipedia has that. I was like, wow, okay. But the biggest sin that is in the Bible is really pride. Because pride is the mother of all sin. What does it mean that God resists the proud? Basically, in the Greek, it's antitasso. And it means this. That God sets up an array against the proud. He sets up an army. It's like the strategy of an army and where the army will be placed, the archers and uh, the shield men and the guys that are on the horses and the swordsmen. It's all strategically arrayed to resist the, on, uh, the oncoming enemy. And this is what God does. It's a military term. God resists the proud. And what it means here is, is that God is resisting our flesh. And the humble and I want to define that later, it's really people that are of the minds set of just lowly, just people that are modest, including the idea, they are in a lot of cases afflicted, and they are oppressed in their life in a lot of cases. Now, a proud person and a humble person has nothing to do with their economic status. I just want to make this point that poverty is not always synonymous with humility. Oftentimes, poverty or poor people we would call poor people, uh, are associated with, um, with uh, there's a lot of pride there. I have met some very, I've met people that have very little resources in their life. They could be designated under the poverty letter, but they're very proud. 
They're, they have a great sense of entitlement that everyone owes them. I've also met people that have a lot of resources that are very wealthy and that they could be very proud and very self-confident. But I've also met very humble, wealthy people, and I've met some very humble, poorer people. So pride has nothing to do with a person's social or economic status, and we have to think outside of that. The, the thing that pride does is, is that it causes damage. I'm going to break this down in a minute, but pride causes damage. It causes complicated situations. It hurts people. Uh, it grieves the Spirit of God. Pride is whenever we are functioning in the flesh. The process of pride goes like this. Second John um, chapter 2, verse 16, it says that the all that is of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. We actually see a little process there, the process of pride. Pride first begins with the lust of the flesh, and that can be something undefined, like I have an appetite for something. You know, I haven't defined what it is, but I have an appetite. I, I, am, uh, I have a hunger for something, and this is what we could call envy or lust. This is the lust of the flesh. This can actually lead to the next step, which is really the uh, lust of the eyes. It's when our eyes pinpoint what we want. I want a new car, and then we see a new, brand new Mustang going down the road. Some of us guys, we look at cars, and we're like, wow, you know? We look at that, and we now have, this is a bit comical, but we now have what we call the lust of the eyes. I've pinpointed what I want, and I want that, and now I'm focusing on that, and that becomes an idol. The next step is the pride of life, meaning I deserve that. I should have that. I'm entitled to that. This is the pride of life. My opinion is that I deserve that. I've been, this is what I, I, this is all about me. I need this. I want this. And this is the pride of life. And so pride really is the monstrous sin. It's the mother of all sin in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. Pride is our enemy. And unfortunately, every one of us were born with an old sin nature. And that old sin nature lives in that, and lives in that, um, disposition of pride. Um, I would like to define this. In, there's two words in the Greek before we get to the, to the solution. And why am I saying this? Because, again, God's desire is to bless our family, to really lead us into a place of blessing in our relationships in our family with our husbands, with our wives. God wants to bless our single life. God wants to bless our relationships with people. God wants to bless our jobs. He wants to bless our health. He wants to bless every aspect of our life according to His grace. But when we live in the flesh, then God resists that because the flesh wants to take us in another direction, which is a direction of self-sufficiency and self-opinion. And this is why God is so against pride. God is so against uh, he has crucified the flesh, but pride can rear up its ugly head in many different ways. And God is against pride, and God wants to deal with that in such an aggressive way because He has such a great plan of blessing for us through His Word and through wisdom. And so, two things. Um, 
Romans chapter 12, verse 3, it says, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. What does that mean? This is the first kind of pride. It's, there's two different words in the Greek that describe pride. The first one is Romans 12, verse 3. And that means to think above our measure, to think above what we really are. That Greek word there is hooperphroneo. It means to think above. It means to overthink. It means to assess myself greater than I really am. Uh, a person that takes on a new job and takes on a new position and really is in a state of learning uh, can take on this mentality to overthink like, oh, I don't need to be trained. I can do this without, without being trained. That is hooper for now. That's to think above. Uh, another person can say that maybe they are just a server at a restaurant and they look at the manager and they say, you know what, I should be the manager uh, even though I don't have no idea what's going on in his realm managing a restaurant. But I should be the manager because I know better. That's hooper for now. That means to think above into things I have no idea about. That's very dangerous in Psalm 133. That's what the devil did when he looked at God and and in, in Isaiah um, chapter 14, and his rebellion against God, he said, I want to be as high as God. I want to be as great as God. And Satan was hooper for that. He was thinking above what he ought to think. Because he was just, in heaven, he was, he was an angel that had a specific uh, job. And he was thinking above his calling. He was thinking beyond his calling. He was thinking above his place in the kingdom of God. And that's hyperfernel. We have a tendency to over-evaluate ourselves or to look at ourselves as in some way um, greater than we ought to. And that gets us in trouble. The second word for pride, as we see in the verse in James 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 6, is, to, is this word pride. And it really is uh, another hyperfernelos. Hyperfernelos. Uh, what does that mean? It means this. It means to shine above. It's one of the meanings. Never saw that until, until I studied this verse out. That's why it's good to get good uh, Greek resources if you can. There's a lot of great resources on the internet. Get yourself a Thompson chain or a Zodiotis Bible, a King James or a New King James. Uh, those are good translations of the Bible. New King James is okay. It's you don't have a King James and go to that. Um, Amplified is a great amplification of the Bible. New American Standard is also good. It just doesn't have the beauty of the Hebrew as like we see in the Old Testament. But what it means here in James 4 verse 6 is a to shine above. To shine to phanos is really the word for light. It means to and we know what that word is today in our culture, doesn't it? Don't we? Doesn't it mean? Haven't we have heard this uh, this saying? Now it's time for you to shine. <laughs> your turn to shine. How many of you have ever heard that? Shine. Now it's your turn to shine. And it's interesting that pride would be in some way related to light. Doesn't that remind us of a verse later on, where Paul says to Timothy that the ministers of Satan have transformed themselves into ministers of. I mean, the ministers of right have. Ministers of Satan have transformed themselves into ministers 
of lights. Isn't that interesting? That's very interesting. Pride basically means that we exalt ourselves above Jesus Christ. We exalt ourselves above the Word of God. And we exalt ourselves above the cross. What is arrogance? How does arrogance, what does that word mean compared to pride? Well, basically, pride is an attitude. Arrogance is really the character or the disposition of pride. A proud man displays arrogant behavior or arrogant um, uh, disposition. And I think we've all met people like that. And so what is really some signs that pride is coming into our life? Now, the biggest, the, 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 the biggest thing about pride is that it's blind. <clears throat> How many have met proud blinds? Not physically blind, but just a person who's proud and they're blind to it. Just pride. <clears throat> they're proud. They just don't, and they don't know it. You could, you could tell them. That you, you know what, you're a little proud, I think, about this. Pride is something that needs to be revealed to us through an external source, through the Word of God. Like Nathan came to David when he was in sin, and God had to confront David. Because when we are living in pride, we don't see it. And when someone comes to us about it, then then we have that choice to either see it or not see it. So the 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 some of the symptoms of pride is really, um, first of all, having an inflated sense of our importance. You know, I like to look at this, that I am just, I'm a, you know, Pastor Shabelli says this, Christianity existed and did very well long before I was alive and it will continue after I die. We are, of high value and greatly loved by God, but pride is the the infl- it's the inflammation of our self-importance, um, and so this is how really it manifests. Number one, in our words and opinions, <clears throat> when our words and our opinions are above the standard of the Bible, you know, ever talk to a person who loves to hear themselves talk? There's actually a verse about that. Just like in you hear those ads, there's an app for that. There's really a Bible verse for this, and that's Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verses 12 to 14. A, pr- a person that is suffering the beginning stages of pride is a person that just loves to hear themselves talk and loves to have their opinion. And I, I just think that it's a good thing for us to learn how to study to be quiet. And I don't mean that we can't talk. I'm just saying in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, let your, the, the emphasis is on your words be few. Let your words be few on earth, for God is in heaven and you are on the earth. I think it's very good for us to learn what it means to be like, to uh, not to be so selfishly opinionated about things because we need to derive value from the situation. We need to feel that we're valuable in what we're saying. For example, a person that knows a lot about computers can actually become someone who is a bit proud, right? How many of us have ever met people that know a lot about something and we know like this much and we just feel like a dwarf around them, right? Knowledge can puff up. You know, knowledge can puff up a person and it can create a very opinionated person. Be careful, like, monitor yourself when you start a sentence like this. I think, we just, like, you gotta, we gotta stop and think for a second. What does that mean? Is this what God thinks? 
Is this God's opinion? Is this what God's word says? Or is this just my opinion in the matter? So, uh, words and opinions. Number two, um, the second sign of pride is really our attitude to correction. Proverbs 26, verse 16. What is my attitude towards correction? Uh, as a pastor, you know, I say, I say this to myself first. I was preparing for this message, and I was like, God, this has got to be a message for me first before I say anything to anybody. Because I'm not here to speak as someone who has arrived to great state of humility. <laughs> you know, we're, on that, we're all on that same road of growth. What is our attitude to correction? Like when we're corrected, you know, maybe in something simple. Or, you know, what is our attitude? Um, I have to tell you something. It's a little confession. And Don knows about this already. But I was driving down here yesterday to do something in the church really quick. And you know how you're going through these, you take these, you know, you get the, the green arrow, right? And I'm coming down York Road and, you know, there's, there's, uh, there are these two lanes, the green arrows, you know, like, I'm thinking, okay, and I, if I can catch this, I need to get right on Street Road and I, have to, I don't have to wait for like 20 minutes for the next green light. So there's a line of cars. You ever do this? You get behind this line of cars that are just going through. So I'm the last one in the line of cars. <laughs> Sure enough, as soon as I get to that stop line there, where you're supposed to stop, the light turns red. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to, so I'm just following the cars, you know. Sure enough, seconds later, I get these, you know, I got these <laughs> lights in my rearview mirror. And I haven't gotten a ticket for 10 years, you know, <laughs> literally. I was like, looking at my, my insurance the other day, wow, 10 years, honey, you know, doing great. And so... Warminster Police, you know, I love these. So uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not against, I thank God they keep order, you know. And so I'm, I get pulled over and I try to pull into this parking lot so I'm not like, you know, thinking maybe somebody at the church is going to drive by and see me pulled over by the police. So I'm in there and he comes over and he's, I look at him and he looks at me and I get the sense that we've seen each other before. And uh, he goes, you know, I'm going to need to see your license and registration. And then at that point, I felt like, I felt like, you know, like this. God's humility process here. He goes, I'm on aggressive driving duty. And I'm like, okay, now great. Now I'm an aggressive driver. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, this is, this is very good for us that we, when we bump up against the, when we bump up against the laws of the state, that we are not above the law. And I didn't tell him I was a pastor or anything like that. That was, you know. I just thought that may not be good. But I think he may, be, he may have known that already. Uh, God uses that. What is our attitude towards correction? And I just said to the officer, I apologize. You know, I understood what I did wrong. And, you know, so he, he kind of looked at me a little bit like, okay. And, uh, you know, what is our attitude to correct, towards correction? <clears throat> we, can always, we can always see where we're at spiritually, if someone comes to correct us in a spirit of humility, even if they're proud the way they correct us, maybe they just do it the, way, the wrong way and we want to lash out and say, who are you to say that to me? Looking at, look at your life, you know? But if what they're saying is true and biblical, then I need, to, I need to submit to truth. Not necessarily that person, but the truth. Love correction. And when we love correction, that means that we're on the right path. Number three, decisions. Just a person's decisions really... Our decisions can really show, like, am I, an, am I an arrogant person? Am I deciding with God on things, or am I just taking things into my own hand? The next one is our outlook at other people. 
Here's a, good, here's a good thing. At Romans 12, verse 10, it says, prefer other people, preferring one another in love. And I think that that's a good sign, you know. It's a good thing when we prefer other people. It doesn't matter where we're at or how much we know or how successful or unsuccessful we are. Prefer other people. Just, you know, I, and this is going to sound funny, and I'm not, you know, it's not third grade, but, you know, opening the door for people and allowing people to go before you and, and um, honoring people. Because you can, we can do this either as a discipline or we can do it as a mindset that I, I want to honor people. I want to honor God's people. Even the weakest person in the church, we want to be honorable. That's why we never talk about people behind their back. We never, we never have discussions in our cars about other people or in our houses or in our church. We never do that. Um, and if somebody comes to me, my, my neighbor came to me and they were like, you know, I have a very interactive neighborhood I've just moved to. Everybody like knocking on my door, giving us, I wanted to talk to us, get to know us. And I'm, I'm hoping this is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Well, my neighbor came to me and they said, you know, like, you know, you are new and there were some other people. They moved away and that's a good thing that they moved away. I was like, uh-oh. Because <laughs> when people start talking negatively about other people to you, it's only a matter of time before you are going to be the subject of a negative conversation about somebody else. That's why we never listen to negativity about other people. You know, we just say, hey, wait, that person's not here. Let's, let's, let's have integrity and invite that person, get them on the phone or conference call them in or, you know, because we don't know the whole story. I, I was watching a newscast last night and I just love this. You know, maybe we don't all agree with... President Bush's, former President Bush's, his policies and what he did, but he was being interviewed by a guy on TV, and this guy was pushing him to maybe say something against President Bush, because, I mean, against Obama. We know that President Obama's having a tough time, and he's really under a lot of, he's under a lot of pressure and criticism. And this would have been a great moment for President Bush to take the stage and shine, you know, overshine and and he says, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say anything negative about um, President Bush. I just realized I'm not using the mic. Okay? He said, I'm not going to say anything negative against Obama because, because <clears throat> if I was to do that, <clears throat> that would, it's not right for, he said, it's not right for me as a former president to speak critically of a sitting, of a sitting president now because that would be divisive for the country. I respect that because there may may be a day when you and I are in a place of maybe we've been justified or we've been vindicated and we could kind of just say, well, you know what? I was right all the time. That guy, we all knew that that guy was a bum. That's just pride, isn't it? Like, I like the integrity of a person that doesn't cause division even when someone is weak. That's, that's, that's pride. When we, when a person takes the, seizes the opportunity to promote themselves. I, I like that, and I, I appreciate that. Next thing is, um, I don't know what number we're on now, but expectations of others. My expectations of others, is it selfish? That's pride. Like, you know, my expectations of other people. What is my expectations of other people? And number, uh, whatever next number is, can't follow instructions. That's going to sound simple. 
But if, but if I've been given instructions and I want to just do it my own way because I think it's better, mm -hmm. it's like let's, pride has many different, and there's many different forms of pride. There's 26 different forms of pride. I don't have time to get into it, but I want to close with this. Uh, before we all condemn ourselves and leave the church and saying I'm a proud person because we're all that in that place where we could be easily proud. Humility is really the way out of every conflict and out of every problem. Humility is a safe place. I like how Dr. Stevens has defined humility. Humility is not thinking too highly of ourselves and it's not thinking too lowly of ourselves. But it's not even living in self-awareness or thinking of ourselves at all. When we take ourselves out of a situation and we take time to pray with God and assess the situation without us being in the middle of it. Maybe somebody has said something about you and you find out about it. And you want to just, with all your religious knowledge and all your religious, you know, just go right at it. But it's like take yourself out of that position and just look at the situation and deal with it that way. That could take some time. We need to take up our cross and allow ourselves to be crucified in that circumstance. Humility. I like this verse. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 3, verses 34 and 35. You don't have to turn there, but listen to this. This is the original verse that's quoted twice in the New Testament by, by, um, uh, by Peter in 1 Peter 5, verse 5, and then also by James in James 4, 6. And this is the verse they quote. Surely he scorns that... He scorns the scorners. And he's talking about God. God will scorn the scorners. But he gives grace to the lowly. And then the second verse is this. The wise shall inherit glory. But shame shall be the promotion of fools. And I want to finish with this. That humbling ourselves. Getting very small in our own. Getting very small. And just taking a step back. And getting very quiet with God. And humbling ourselves in the matter. And it may take some time, but really taking a moment and saying, God, I want just to humble myself before you first and before people, because that is the answer to every relationship problem. Every relationship issue that we have, the way out is just to humble ourselves, whether it be a marriage, whether it be a, a work thing. And next month, um, December, uh, on our Thursday nights, we're going to be dealing with just interpersonal things, conflicts, uh, social uh, skills. We're just going to talk about all of God's mind about these things. When we humble ourselves in relationship or personality conflicts, what are we doing? We're getting out of our. We're getting our. We're getting ourselves out of the way, and we let God step in. Is that what David did? David learned how to do that. David knew how to humble himself with Saul. And allowed God to step in. Paul, uh, Samuel said to Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 17, he said, Samuel said, when you were little in your own sight, thou wast not made the head. When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. Humility incurs the blessing of God. <clears throat> and when God, when you sense God's resistance in your life, sometimes we look at circumstances and we say, you know what, I got a bad lot in life. And that may happen for a while, <clears throat> but if it's a consistent thing in our life, we might want to look at like, is God trying to humble me here? Am I, is God trying to break me in the area of, 
of some area of my life and to make me not dependent on what I know or what I can do? Is God trying to humble me? And this is kind of a tough message, but I'm just saying that that we could really be blessed and used by God if we learn how to get ourselves out of the, God's way and just let God move in things. When we humble ourselves and look at everything in our life as a gift, that's what humility does. <clears throat> humility looks at everything in our life as a great gift. And I'm going to close with that. When you look at <clears throat> your life and everything in your life as a gift from God, then we're functioning in humility. We're not living in entitlement. We're not living in self-opinions. We're not living in the pride of knowledge or pride of what we can do. We're not living in our, in our own uh, exaltation of how we are with other people. We are thankful for people. I just want to say I'm so thankful for people here. <clears throat> you may not think that, but I'm just so thankful. You know, I'm so thankful that <clears throat> people take the time to hear from God in church here. I'm so thankful for that because I know that we are just, uh, we don't deserve anything that God gives us. Humility puts us in a place to be under the shower of God's grace and blessing. And I want to I think this way. Maybe I've been a believer for 30 years, but I want to always be thinking like, God, am I getting arrogant or proud in certain areas of my life? And and am I suffering because I'm suffering for the body's sake or am I suffering because of the area of the lack of wisdom and pride in my life? I want to think with God and pray about those things because when we do that, we put ourselves in a position to be blessed with peace and promotion. Because pride is, there's a lot we could say about it. But it's really great to start each day with God and just say, God, I'm just humbling myself before you under your mighty hand. It says that, it says that in the word, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Peter said that, and he will lift you up. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up. And avoid arrogance and avoid self-opinionatedness because people really then can see God. When we humble ourselves and we don't take the place of what we deserve or what we think we are right in, God is free to work in a great way. And I think that God has you right where you're supposed to be when you're workplaces. You know, you're living where you're supposed to be. You're working where you're supposed to be. I think God has put you there because we are like agents of God in the sense of just being ministers and vessels of his righteousness. You are where you are supposed to be in your family. And you're ministering to your family. And we want to really pray for folks in their family situations and really just trust God for, for things. Amen? So that's just a few words about pride and maybe we could